But good morning, church family. Good morning to all you who are watching online, and good morning to all of you who are outside streaming. Glad to have you. Name is uh, Brandon Ziski, lead pastor here at Austin Oaks, Austin Oaks Church, and also an adamant hater of Spring Forward Daylight Savings Time. I'd be great with Daylight Savings if it was always fall back. Like, that'd be fine. Like, seriously, always. It'd be like a treat to always get another extra hour of sleep. Nonetheless, I'll just move on. Um, hey, Next Sunday is an exciting Sunday for us as a church. If you were with us last week, we challenged everybody to think about one or two people who they could be inviting to come to Celebration Sunday. So next Sunday, we're going to be outside at this time, 11 a.m., out in the courtyard, one service, and we're going to be celebrating life change. It's going to be the gospel on display through people, and also we'll be presenting the gospel real clearly. So this is a great opportunity for you to invite your friends, neighbors, colleagues, classmates, whatever, to hear the message of Jesus Christ through life change, right? So we want to encourage you to do that. And also, there was about 100 names that were brought up to the front here. Just be mindful and keep praying for those folks that God would be working in their, in their hearts. So if you have a Bible, turn with me to Luke chapter 5. And as you're heading there, I wanted to first dive in again to remind us as a church about our mission and our, pa- uh, and our purpose, because this text this morning really does talk a lot about our soul passion. Here at Austin Oaks Church, we say it a lot that our sole ambition is to be simply about Jesus. He's the one who changes everything. Right? We could talk about religion, we could talk about all the things that you need to do and be and all that kind of stuff, but none of that changes a heart. The world has a bunch of things they could offer you, but the world cannot offer you Jesus. And so that's why we stand with the Apostle Paul, who says that when he came to the church in Corinth, that he resolved to know nothing except Christ crucified. And that's why we want to be simply about him because when you encounter Jesus and when you see who he is and experience his love and the gospel through him, it literally changes everything. And that fuels right into our mission, which is to help people to meet, know, and follow Jesus. And so when we encouraged you last week to think about people that you can invite to church, that's you taking a step in helping people meet Jesus. Right, so this morning, as we dig into this chapter, we're going to see Luke communicating to Theophilus. Not only, again, that Jesus is altogether different, that he's not from these parts, right? He is King of kings, Son of God, Lord of lords, above all, altogether different. But also, he's going to begin to tell Theophilus that Jesus' plan to change the world is a very counterintuitive plan. Now, as I was going through this passage this whole week, it dawned on me that I have this presupposition in my mind when I read like Acts and the early church that the church of Jesus Christ at that moment was this unstoppable force that was like just mass revival was breaking throughout the, the you know, Europe and in the Middle East and all that kind of stuff. And I was thinking, man, it had to have been like hundreds of thousands of people following Jesus by 100 A.D., Historians actually tell us a completely different story that really challenges me in a lot of ways. About around 100 AD, there was only roughly about 7,500 Christians. Like that just like boggles my mind. It's not what I would have thought. In fact, Origen, who is an early church father born um, in late 2nd century, he, he mentioned that Christianity 
even though it was geographically spread out, there's a lot of different church communities, it was numerically insignificant. Like I, when I read that and connect those dots of history, I oftentimes go, how did we get to this place? Like how did Jesus and the gospel flip the world upside down? Because that's what it did. At 312 AD, the emperor Constantine, the Roman emperor, decided to convert to Christianity because Christians were so influential. They were serving and they were so uh, uh, flipping the city upside down that he said, you know what? In order to have political advantage, I need to become a Christian. And so Christianity had such a wide sweeping movement at that time. And I'm asking myself the question, how did they do it? Like what did the early church see that we often fail to see? I mean, they didn't have million dollar budgets. They didn't have great facilities. They didn't have Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and TikTok, whatever that is. I don't know. They didn't have all those things. They didn't have TV. They didn't have radio. Like how were they able to spread the kingdom of God, the message of Jesus Christ so vastly that all of a sudden the greatest empire in the world at that time became Christian? It's a great question. And what we know without a shadow of a doubt, it was that everybody who followed Jesus at that time, as best as we know, they understood their purpose and their calling. They understood that they were first to follow Jesus. I am following him. His way of life is influencing every aspect of my life. But not only that, people who followed Jesus, they owned the responsibility of the mission to go make disciples of all nations. They didn't shrug that off and say, oh, that's for the professional Christians. That's for the senior pastor. That's why we have budgets. That's why we have church meetings and votes and things like that. Because that's how we support the mission. No, no, no. They owned their responsibility. They understood that to follow Jesus means they are part of the mission. Because you can't follow Jesus and not be part of the mission. It's impossible. And that's what we're going to discover this morning. And that's why we say our mission is to help people to meet, know, and follow Jesus. I look at Christianity today, specifically in America. I look at everything that the church has. I look at all of our facilities over the last years that are half full at best. Our million-dollar budgets, if we were to add up all the budgets that every church has, we're talking in the billions social influencers, all this kind of stuff. And I'm like, why aren't we making a greater difference? Church attendance is rapidly declining. And I have to ask the question, and I think it's important for you to ask the question as well. Do we own the burden and the responsibility of the mission to go make disciples? Or are we just cultural Christians? I'm not going to apologize for this morning's passage. It's going to be a little bit right here because it's so important for us to understand the heartbeat of what it means to follow Jesus. So let's look at this. Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5, verse 1. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret and he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. 
And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into deep and let down your nets for a catch. Father, we come to you in your son's name this morning and we appeal to your spirit. We, we know that unless your Holy Spirit opens our eyes and our hearts, we're not going to be able to understand your word. So we, we come in humility, dependence upon you at the foot of the cross, asking for your spirit to move. Lord, and I'm asking that this morning as we come to this passage that we would hear this story with fresh ears and fresh eyes, that we wouldn't bring our presuppositions of what we think Christianity is or what we think it means to be a fisher of people, but we would hear it the way that Theophilus would have heard it, that we would hear it the way that the early church would have heard it. So Father, would you speak to our hearts, God, individually, collectively as a church, We love you, Lord, and I ask that in this moment we would truly have an experience with you. In Christ's name, amen. I'm, I, like you know, I love to put myself in these stories, and I love, one of my favorite things to do is like, I love fishing. The only part of fishing I don't like is the early morning fishing. I don't mind late night fishing, but in this story, the the pieces in context, like Peter was a professional fisherman. And so he had some partners and they would have to go out at night because at that time in Galilee, around especially the Sea of Galilee, you don't fish during the day. You just, you just don't do it. It's too hot. The fish go too deep. They fish with nets. They don't have poles and all that kind of stuff. So they don't do it, but they fish at night. And so this particular story, we see Peter who's been fishing all night. And now like this is a, a minnow net, so this has no resemblance of what their actual nets would have been. The nets there were like real thick twine, and they would be roughly like, you know, 20 feet by like maybe six feet wide. And imagine this process all night long. This is what you would do. You would cast it, you would spread it out, and you would throw it in, and it would get saturated with water. And you didn't just leave it there for hours, right? They didn't just leave the net there for six hours and hope they would get there. They would leave it there for a bit bring it back in to see if anyone's there, then they would bring it back together and throw it back out on and on and on and on. So the whole process is a messy process, right? You'd be soaked by this time. And at, also at night around the Sea of Galilee, it gets really cold. So you're wet, you got the nice brisk air coming off the sea and the building frustration of catching nothing. Now that's a big deal because this isn't rec recreational fishing. This is life and death type of fishing. This is their provision. This is his job. If he doesn't bring home fish, he's not getting paid and his family's not eating. So here they are all night long fishing. And you got to imagine around 4.30 in the morning, knowing that the sun's about to come up, you got to be frustrated. I get mad. Like I love fishing and sometimes I like to convince myself and lie to myself, be like, it's fine if I don't catch anything. Lie frustrating, okay? Now imagine that. You're doing this all night long and you can just feel this collective look amongst Peter and his colleagues looking at each other and be like, let's call it a night. And they have to row back in and then the worst part of the job starts. Like you can tolerate this part of the job if you caught fish, but if you didn't catch fish, this is just frustrating. They would unfurl their nets Right? They would have to spread them all out and they would have more than one net and they would have to look for little holes or tears because this is all they have. They don't have a lot of money to go buy new nets each and every day. So they would have to mend the nets and dry them out and then they have to refold it. It would be a really heavy, frustrating task. Mind you, it's about 7 a.m. now. You've been up all night, caught nothing. Sound like fun? 
And in this story, somehow, someway, Peter either got there first or Jesus was there first. Jesus is now preaching and there's a crowd. And so we got Peter and his, disciples, and his friends are out there washing and mending their nets. And Jesus is preaching. And Jesus knows that the people in the back row can't hear him because they didn't have microphones. And since Jesus created water, he understands how water works. It'll amplify his voice. He goes to Peter and says, Peter, can I use your boat? Because I need to use it so I can amplify my voice off of the water. To which Peter's like, yes, get me out of this chore. Right? Like, that's exactly what I'd be thinking. Yes, I'm lazy. So if I get any out of chores at home, my wife knows this, so there's no shame. I'd be like, yeah, let me find a way out. Right? Like, that, like I'd imagine Peter in this moment looking at James and John and the fathers going, <laughs> and he's out there in the boat just chilling. Sun is on him, nice and warm. You got to imagine tempting to fall asleep. Jesus is preaching. I doubt it. Peter is riveted with what Jesus is saying. I'm willing to bet that Peter is trying Hard, like trying really hard to stay awake in a sermon. None of you guys struggle with that. I get it. But Peter in this moment is struggling. And all of a sudden Jesus finishes his, his sermon. And then he turns to Peter. Hey, Peter, let's go back out. Let's go fishing. Like, what would you do? Like, don't just read this and be like, oh, this is a fun story. No, put yourself in Peter's shoes for a moment and go, I'm a sinful human. So what would you do? I, I, like, I see this in Peter's face. I, I'd be like, I can imagine Peter like, like kind of like coming out of his like slumber a little bit and leaning up saying, what did you just say? Like, you want me to do what? Like, this is ridiculous. Like, Jesus, I'm a professional fisherman. We don't do this. You're a professional rabbi. You stick to the Bible. I'll stick to fishing. You don't know anything about fish. Or like, like, I can imagine that dialogue going on. Like, real frustrating. And here's what Luke records for us as to how Peter responded. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. Listen, he's not giving an account of his latest fishing expedition. This is like he's almost feeling insulted that Jesus would ask him, like, listen, we were out there all night. We caught nothing. Can't you see? We mended our nets. We folded up. We're ready to go home. We're tired. I want to be able to tell my family I caught nothing, deal with the frustration, take a nap so I can go back at it again tonight. That's the feeling that Peter is giving here. Like some people would be like, because of what he says next, but at your word, I'll let down your net. Some people like to say, well, Peter is surrendering and willful and, and, and worshiping Jesus in obedience. I'm like, I don't think so. I don't see that in Peter. What I see here is Peter humoring Jesus. Sure, Jesus, at your word, we'll go out. I mean, I don't, like, if this was, like, worshipful obedience on Peter's end, he would be expecting to catch a lot of fish. Peter's not expecting anything. I think he's just entertaining Jesus. I think he's delaying the inevitable. Hey, this gives me a couple more hours where I don't have to go home and face my wife and tell her I caught nothing. Like, sure, let's go out and do this. He's humoring Jesus. Yeah, all right, we'll do it. But I'm not expecting anything. Come on, we know exactly what this is like. When you face frustration or disappointment in your life or when things don't work out the way you expect them to work out and maybe there's hurt, let down, you come up empty, whatever it is, and all of a sudden you're like, someone says to you, hey, maybe you should pray about it. Okay, I guess I'll pray. I'm not expecting I'll do anything anyways, but I'll do it. Hey, you should come to church. Okay, I'll go to church because that's what God wants me to do anyways. Like, how many times do we humor God like that? 
But here's what I love about Jesus. He takes it. He takes it. Like even in our disappointment and our frustrations, if, if all we can offer him in that moment is some sarcasm and some humor, he'll take it because he knows that we need to experience him. He knows that we don't understand who he is. He knows that our hearts aren't right until we experience him. So Jesus takes it. He's like, okay, I can, I can work with that. And so here we go. Luke, Luke 5, 6. And when they, heard, when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled. This is, the, this is a horrible three-word sequence here for people who previously lived in Minnesota. Both the boats. That's all you're going to remember in the sermon. Like, I can't, every time I read that, I'm like, I sound so bad. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. And when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, depart from me. I'm a sinful man, O Lord, for he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of the fish that they had taken. You got to get it. Picture this. It's a seven and a half wide boat by 30 feet. And for that boat to begin sinking, you got you to know, like, the fish were filled to the top and overflowing. Like, in that moment, like, you had to have been so preoccupied and so taken over by what was happening in that moment that you're actually missing what really happened in that moment. You're just thinking about dealing with all of the fish and everything there, and you're like, oh, my goodness, look at this. And all the while, you're forgetting the fact that Jesus just sent out a thought to the fish, and the fish went to that net. All of a sudden, it dawns on Peter. He's like, oh my gosh. That dude just thought and the fish went. Like, I, I mean, like, if I were to be honest, like, I would be terrified in this moment. I would love to think that I would have been the guy be like, you're awesome, Jesus. You're amazing. Let's go fishing again. But like, he's in this moment like, he just thought that. Like, what if he knows me? Like, what if he thinks something about me? Like, what if he knows that I haven't read the Torah, the Bible, for a long time? Like, what if he knows I, I kind of gave up on him? What if he knows my thoughts and my sinful patterns? What if he knows that I'm not schooled or educated, I'm not successful? What if, he, what if he knows all of this? And this is why I love Jesus so much is because he always takes the first response. He knew everything about Peter's heart. He knew that Peter knew some things about Jesus. He knew that Jesus healed his mother-in-law, but Peter never had a one-on-one -on -one personal encounter with Jesus till this moment. And that's what it takes to begin following Jesus. You don't follow Jesus without actually having some sort of encounter with him face-to-face. Until you, you experience him getting into your heart. That's his grace. He always takes the initiative. He's the one that's always leading us to himself. And thank the Lord for that. Because if I were to be honest, apart from him, and I know you as well, even though I might not know you personally, but I know you're, you're a sinner, and I know that you too wouldn't go after Jesus either. So praise the Lord that he invites us to go out into deep to experience him. He meets Peter on his turf in Peter's boat, with Peter's nets. And all of a sudden, Peter has his reality check. He's like, this guy is not from here. And in that moment, Peter's heart was completely exposed. This is a natural response when we encounter Jesus.
apart from me. God, you, I'm evil. You feel the, ga- the, the guilt and the shame in your heart. Like this is, the fir- this is what we always do when we encounter God. All the way back in Genesis chapter 3 in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve sinned. And when God came looking for them, what did they do? They hid. God was looking for them. God took the initiative. Why did they hide? They were full of guilt and shame. We do the same thing when we experience God. It's our, it, it's our natural reflex. It's just a... But look how Jesus responds. And Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. Remember, reading this and hearing this for the first time, because we immediately know how to fill in the rest of the sentence, because if you've been around church long enough, you know the story. But you've got to stop right here and realize who is saying this to you. Do not be afraid. Yeah, I'm the one. I can just send a thought and the fish will go into the nets. And yes, I know your heart. I know you're evil. I know you're broken. I know you're sinful. I know you're not a religious person. I know you failed. I know all of this. But listen, do not be afraid, Peter. This is why I've come. Because I need you to see me. Because the only way you could ever love me is if you see me. And I have to take that initiative. Praise God for that. First John 1, 5, it says that perfect love drives out fear. Perfect love drives out fear. How many of us feel oftentimes inadequate, guilty, shameful? How many of us would be embarrassed if the thoughts of our hearts were laid bare before others? God knows the heart. God's above the heart. And he has come so that his perfect love can drive out the fear because he wants us to follow him. And when you feel that, it's like Peter is hearing from Jesus, Peter, this, this is good. What you're feeling is poverty of spirit. What you're feeling is brokenness. And that is necessary for you to understand the fullness and blessed life that I have for you. Peter, don't be afraid. I'm going to give you a new purpose, a new direction, a new calling in your life. And it's going to be twofold. Peter, I'm asking you that wherever you go, And whenever you go and whatever it is that you do, your general calling in life, your purpose in life, Peter, is now to catch people, to be a fisherman of people, to catch people alive. But Peter, understand, you can't do this unless you understand who I am. And that's why I need you to follow me. You need to follow me, which is a disciple. And as you follow me, you will become a fisher of people. Now, what we see here is not just true for Peter. It's true for all of us, is that when we come and follow Jesus, he gives us a new purpose with a new direction, 100% of the time, always. I love the way Mark writes it in the Gospel of Mark, where he says, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. I love the way Jesus says that. Because I don't know we would answer it the same way that Jesus said that. 
So let's play with this a little bit, okay? Let's be honest with our hearts. Now, again, remember when I said let's try to hear the story as if you've never heard it before? So if you were to hear this invitation from Jesus to follow him, and if you were to try to understand what Christianity is, and Jesus was to say, follow me and I will make you, and we just left it blank, follow me and I will make you blank, what would you fill in there? Here's a hint. Answer this question. What is your concept of Christianity? If you answer that, you will know what you will put in that blank. Follow me and I will make you what? Aren't we often tempted to think that if I follow Jesus, he will make me better, more religious, a better Christian? more holy. The options are numerous of what we would fill in that blank. But that is not what Jesus had in mind. Not at all. In fact, this is where we mess up because we, we have confused, I think, in a lot of ways what we think Christianity is. Christianity isn't just coming to church and singing a bunch of songs and da-da-da-da-da, all that kind of stuff. If that's all that Christianity is to you, you're going to be frustrated. Trying to worship Jesus is going to be frustrating. You're going to find it coming up empty and dull and stagnant. And so when you have the option to go to church or not go to church, you're going to choose not to go to church. Why would you go to church? But Jesus is very clear from the beginning of all things, saying, Peter, when you follow me, here's what I'm going to be doing in your life. This is my intention and my design for you, for all who follow me. I will make you into a fisher of people. In other words, you follow me, you're a disciple, and if you're going to follow me, you're going to discover at some point that my work in your life is to get you to make disciples. Christianity always understood it that way. And that's how the kingdom of God flipped the world upside down. It wasn't through some crazy strategic building campaigns. It was through life on life, people on people. Follow me and I will make you. Well, okay, okay, okay. Jesus, I will follow you. Oh, man, I'll follow you when I become a member at the church. Then I'll follow you. Jesus, when I have memorized, I don't know, the whole book of Romans, I'll follow you then. I'll, I'll follow you when I can handle this sin issue in my life. I'll follow you when I do this. I'll follow you when I finally am out of debt. I'll follow you when I do this. Okay, I'm good. Yeah, yeah, no problem. I'll follow you later. This is a right now. The moment you say yes to following Jesus is the very moment Jesus enlists you into the school of learning how to make a disciple. And this is why so often, I'm going to go there. This is why so often churches argue and fight over the most ridiculous things in the world. Church splits happen over paint color. You laugh, but it's true. Church splits happen over music preference, volume, dress code. I can keep going. That's because we filled in that blank with something else. If we were following Jesus, that means we're imitating the master. We're following his way of life and realizing that he came for the sick, not for the healthy. 
and that he was accused of hanging out with drunks and, and prostitutes and sinners. Well, because he knew they needed Jesus. And so he went for them and he didn't care. If we understood again that the call to follow Jesus doesn't mean that it's just about me. I get to come and sing one day a week and it's awesome and I'm part of this church and I went through the growth track all the way up to 5.A. I'm good. Now I'm a disciple. No. Jesus said if you follow me, he will make you. And here's the part I love about that promise. You don't make you. He makes you. So don't fight what he's trying to do in your life. And here's where this gets really, really hard. Okay? Peter at that moment had no clue what, like, can you imagine this? Okay? In Acts, Luke said that uh, when Peter and those guys were out preaching, they said, like, how are these guys doing this? They're ordinary men. They're unschooled, a.k.a. they're stupid. Like, they were shocked that these fishermen were flipping the world upside down. And at that moment when Peter was in the boat and Jesus said, follow me, make you into fishers of people, I'm pretty sure Peter had no idea what that meant. I'm pretty sure Peter wasn't thinking about all that implied with discipleship. In fact, I'm a literalist. I think this is the way I think. I had to imagine Peter probably held the net up a little bit and be like, so Jesus, you're telling me you want me to throw this over people. Like, I mean, it was like, I think I get what you're saying, but do you want me to put dollars in this? Is that how I lure people, like, catch people? Like, they were unschooled, you know, maybe that's just me because I like to think I'm a simpleton and makes me feel good about myself. But here's, here's what's so important. Discipleship, friends, discipleship is not a Christian thing. Christianity doesn't own the market on discipleship. Discipleship is how God created humanity. We imitate. We learn by following. Every system, every kingdom, every platform, every culture is in the business of catching people. You don't believe me? Just think about the last year all of the different values and all the political wars and cultural wars, all the stuff that were out there. Everything is screaming and competing for our hearts and our attention and giving us a picture of the preferred future. Everything is in the business of making disciples. Everything is in the business of catching people. And that's why the church has to wake up and get on this task. Because if we don't do the job of discipling, I'm telling you, the world's going to do a phenomenal job at it. When Jesus invites us to follow him, he's asking us for a conscious choice. In other parts, we're going to see this in Luke. He says, if any of you, if any of you would so choose to follow me. In other words, what he's about to say is, it's not an option. If you want to follow me, you must deny yourself. Not an option. You must carry your cross and then follow me. It's not an option if any of you would do this. And so when Jesus is asking us to follow him, he's asking us to make a conscious decision 
really that's also of a cost-benefit ratio. Is he worth following? Is he worth following? Like, that's a, that's a painful question to have to answer. I mean, when we follow him, here's the reality. Following Jesus is the most exclusive type of discipleship there is. To follow Jesus means you have to die to all other kinds of discipleship. To follow Jesus means you have to come out of other kingdoms in this world so that you can enter into his kingdom. You can't have one foot here and one foot there. You just can't do it. And that's the problem is I think so many of us are trying so hard to do that that we get ourselves so wrapped up into I got to have this and I want to be this. And we try to make Christianity into something that we want it to be, but it's not what Jesus is trying to do in our hearts. I mean, this message of discipleship is the worst media campaign in the world to reach people. If you want to reach people, Jesus, just provide a buffet of food, right? Like the feeding of 5,000, they're like, keep doing it. He said, no. And then where do they all go? Jesus wanted to reach the world with the gospel, and his message was, oh, deny yourself. Where our culture says, find yourself. It's all about you. Carry your cross. Surrender your rights. Live for another. Live for him and his ambition and his kingdom and his glory. Oh, really? I don't want to do that. This is the essence of what it means to be a Christian. You can't think your way into Christianity. You don't think your way into following. It's not just a set of doctrines that we agree to. It's a lifestyle. It's a way of living. Did you know that the New Testament only uses the word Christian three times? Three do you know how many times it used the word disciple? 269. That's rather intentional, I would say. Christianity is about discipleship to Jesus, the new direction. I follow him. And then it's about a new purpose. He will make us into fishers of people. Peter did not think about this at all. None of this. He wasn't weighing out all this stuff. I got to carry my cross to deny myself. He wasn't thinking about any of that. At that moment, in that story, I guarantee you the only thing he was thinking about was, do I stay with the fish or do I follow this guy that I don't know? I mean, we look at this in verse 11. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Like, that's just too simplistic. Like, I don't know about you, but when I read that, I'm like, I fail right there. You know, like, how did that, like, no, there's no way that it was just that easy, right? You got to know, like, this is the catch of a lifetime. This is like the business deal that will forever change your life. Like, this would change the financial fortune forever. Like, Peter would have been established. He's all this fish. Leave all of this to follow him. Like, in that moment, Peter's having this cost-benefit ratio. Is it worth it? To which he answered, yes. And I know some of us read this story and we go, oh, does that mean I have to leave my job to follow Jesus? It's kind of like the rich young ruler says, you got to give all that you have and follow Jesus. Some people are like, well, I'm not going to do that. It's not really what he meant. Like, you're right. It's not what he meant. It's the principle. 
It's about saying Jesus is priority in all things, that you're going to follow him in all things, that there's no more compartmentalization in your Christianity. It isn't just Jesus on Sunday and my job on Monday and my relationships in the evening. No, it's Jesus 24-7, 365. So here's the question I want you to wrestle with. Is he worth it to you to follow him? I don't know what God will call you to. I don't know what God will ask you to give up. I don't know what he will say to turn away from. But is he worth it? This is a question you have to answer every day. Because Jesus says, pick up your cross daily. Is he worth it? Is he worth dying to all other kinds of discipleship? Is he worth moving out of other kingdoms to move into his? Is he worth it? And friends, here's the reality. You're not going to be able to deny yourself. You're not going to be able to carry a cross. You're not going to be able to answer these questions unless you've been captivated by Jesus. If you don't love him above all other things, it will slip into religion. It will slip into, ah, it's just about this and that. And that's the beautiful part is that he invites us into a relationship with him. The one who can send a thought to thousands of fish to jump into nets. You get to have a relationship with him. The one who spoke stars into being and the sun to be there. And just, just by the voice of the word, he lets us into this relationship with him where we learn to fall in love with him, where we learn to realize who he is and how good he is and how he loves us, even in spite of us. And when we start to get a taste for who he is and learn to love him with everything, there is no longer a cost-benefit ratio to even consider. The answer is yes, he is worth it. 100% he is worth it. And the beautiful part is, is that God is so gracious he is so gracious with us. He understands that it's a struggle. He understands it's a process. So, what will you do with Jesus? Will you follow him? He invites you to. Are you growing closer to him to, to learn to love him more, to see him more? Practical ways of doing that is getting into community, worshiping with each other in community, pursuing Jesus alone and together. But secondly, how are you making disciples? There is no later. It is right now. And this is why we're in this series called Be the Movement one of the things that I'm gonna, we're going to start sharing with you in the days to come is what we're praying for. In 2025, we're praying that 500 people get baptized here at Austin Oaks Church. We're praying that 500 people make, make new professions of faith to Jesus. We're praying to see 1,150 people come from the emerging generations. That's a lot of work. And we can't do that without you. 
We can't reach the younger generations without every generation owning the responsibility of the Great Commission to make disciples. But you first follow. Make no mistake, you are being discipled. Make no mistake. It's just a matter of who. Friends, Judges 2.10, and this is how I'm going to conclude. Judges 2.10 is a verse that's sitting on my heart. More so these days than not. And it says this. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. That's after Joshua. I pray that we would feel so burdened for the emerging generations as a church that we would read something like this and say, not on our watch. Not on our watch. Which means we need to own the mission. Jesus, I thank you for your word and your, this time together. And, and I know a lot of words were spoken. But Lord, this is where we trust your spirit to work and take the words that are necessary for each of us individually and corporately and work them into our heart. Lord, I pray that you wouldn't let us leave here today without considering sincerely if you are worth it. And forgive us for even having, oh my goodness, forgive us for having, even having to ask that question, Lord. And I'm thankful that by your grace, you know that we have to wrestle with that question. Lord, I pray that you would reveal to us the things that hold us back from following you, the fear that we have from making disciples. Lord, I pray that you would work deeply in our hearts, God. Would you use this final moment to speak and seal the work in our hearts that you need to do? Lord, I pray that these words are not just words that we sing as a transition, but they are words that do work in our hearts through your spirit. So, Lord, in these final moments, would you meet us together as brothers and sisters looking to follow you? In Christ's name.